Hey friends, it's Maya, back with a new episode of the Gaysian Podcast. You know, the podcast is all about exploring the queer and trans-Asian experience. I am so stoked about this week's episode. It is with this incredible human being, Ada Cheng, who I met through friend of the podcast, Randy Kim. Um, Ada and Randy are the tour de forces behind Chicago's Talk Stories uh, storytelling series, which is centered on Asian American and Asian diaspora storytelling, um, as well as the two of them and Ada herself do a lot of work within Chicago's storytelling community to empower marginalized voices, which is really, really incredible. Um, I mean, you know me here, I think that there's something so incredible and empowering just through the simple act of being able to tell one's own story um, and to just meet somebody and see someone like Ada and also like Randy create a platform for which... um, folks within the Chicago community can uh, find the space to do that is really, really amazing. And also, like, now I wish I lived in Chicago. Um, A little bit about Ada. Literally, she is one of the coolest people I have ever met, and I only want to talk to her forever now after this episode. Um, But Ada is a professor-turned-storyteller, solo performer, and a storytelling show producer. She was a tenured professor in sociology at DePaul University for 15 years, from 2001 to 2016, when she resigned to pursue storytelling and performance. Ada gets to talk a lot about this transition in this episode, and it's really... She's just so cool, guys. Like, Ada is one of the coolest persons I have literally ever met, and you can probably tell through this intro and then also through the ensuing episode, like, how many times I was just like, holy shit, Ada, you are blowing my mind. Um, During her tenure at uh, DePaul, she taught subjects on gender, sex, sexuality, masculinity, and immigration. Her first solo show, Not Quite, Asian American by Law, Asian Woman by Desire, uh, has been performed at the National Storytelling Conference in Kansas City, the Capitol Fringe Festival in Washington, D.C., Minnesota Fringe Festival in Minneapolis, Boulder Fringe Festival in Boulder, uh, and the Come and Go Theater in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, She debuted her second solo show, Breaking Rules, Broken Hearts, Loving Across Borders, in January 2018, has since performed it in San Francisco, in New York, and also in LA. Um, She's just so cool. Like, just so, so cool. I feel like I need to stop this intro so that all of you can get to hear how cool Ada is. Um... In this episode, as you can tell from Ada's, like, incredible bio and how much I keep raving about her, um, we talk about everything from, you know, what Asian American culture is. Like, if we can even define culture in such a way that we can put it into a question that is like, what is Asian American culture? Um, We also talk about uh, BDSM and what it's like to interact with sexuality in that way, in that very empowering and, um, you know, owning your own sexuality type of way as queer Asian American women, um, as well as so many other things, what it's like to be 
looking for Ada, looking at the millennial generation and younger and this desire to go back to where we came from and look at our parents' um, cultures, but removing uh, removing colonialism from the aspect and kind of decolonializing like our histories and things like that and what the implications of that thought process are. And is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it just insanely complicated and something that we need to constantly be aware of embracing those nuances. She's really cool, you guys. <laughs> I want her to be my professor for life, honestly. Um, I'm gonna stop talking, uh, and so you get to hear all of the awesomeness that is Ada Chang. Um, a couple housekeeping things. Uh, our spooky t-shirts are live on the website, so go grab one. Um, they're definitely in line with a lot of things that we talk about in this episode in terms of em not embracing, but acknowledging and working through intergenerational trauma, what that means uh, for younger uh, or third culture Asian Americans in kind of understanding and defining and creating our own spirituality and our own culture mixed with that of our our ancestors as well as just celebrating spooky season um as always queer and trans asians to the front but everyone is welcome so with that without further ado this is the gaysian podcast with ada chang I'm so glad and so excited to have you on the podcast today. Um, you are an incredibly, incredible human being, and I have only heard the most amazing things about you from Randy Kim, um, and just kind of watching the things that you've been posting about uh, for the events that you do in Chicago, as well as reading a little bit more about you and, and the work that you've done and kind of your story um, I'm just beyond excited to get to talk to you today. Um, but before we get into everything, uh, before we get into everything, um, can I ask you to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Uh, my name is Ada Jin, and I'm a professor turned storyteller, solo performer, and storytelling show producer. And I'm based in Chicago. Well, I am super stoked about the storytelling part of it. Um, something that has been really, really interesting to me lately, kind of as I have been seeing how important it is to find community and just find other folks um, that understand kind of the queer Asian experience and, and what that is like navigating spaces as a queer Asian person. Um, I really noticed how important it is for us to tell our own stories and, and to be able to, you know, put 
our experiences in our own words uh, versus kind of how historically in the United States, a lot of Asian stories have been told from a non-Asian American perspective um, that tends to kind of be derived from the various wars that we've had in Southeast Asia and Eastern Asia. And I was wondering, like, what has that been like, uh, you know, kind of navigating that, uh, you know, the influence of, of those perspectives on your own stories, um, and then trying to dismantle that as you so very clearly are doing through all of these storytelling events? Mm -hmm. um, I think to answer that question, I will explain how I even uh, got into storytelling. Uh, coming from an academic background, and that would explain why I decided to resign. I mean, there's several stories, but um, one is um, I was already telling personal stories when I was teaching at a university. I am a, I'm a trained sociologist, so I was talking about sociological theories and constructs and statistics and things like that. I will be telling my personal stories. Now, it, this is a, a pedagogy that is very much supported and endorsed by feminist um, uh, philosophy and feminist uh, pedagogy, where you tell personal stories as a way to uh, validate theory or to demonstrate how theory operates. And in some way, there's that sort of traveling between theory and personal experiences. Um, but I was heavily penalized uh, when I was at the university. I one time had a higher administrator tell me that it's, uh, it's unprofessional to tell personal stories in a classroom. Um, however, this is what really uh, partially drove me out of the academia. I started teaching at a university in 2001 and until 2015. The last few years when I was teaching at the university, I found a tremendous dissatisfaction with uh, the pedagogy. So I was an award-winning uh, teacher. So every semester, quarter, quarter system, students would tell me, gosh, Ada, you, you, you change our mind, you, you really transform the way I think about issues. But here's also the thing that is, I can see their thinking has changed in the classroom. But I also know that once they leave the classroom, they will go back to business as usual, right? Yeah. They will go back to their daily routine. In the last few years when I was teaching there, we were witnessing tremendous social changes. Uh, think about Black Lives Matter, right? And, and you were te teaching in Chicago, correctly? Yes, uh, in Chicago, DePaul okay. and, um, and I also knew that what I, I, I realized that I was connecting with students intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. I was changing their mind, changing the way they think about issues. But here is so sort of thing. People don't change the way they behave because they think differently, right? Mm -hmm. We know now facts, data, statistics are not enough to change how people think. Right? Yeah. But people 
will change the way they think and change the way they behave if you compel them emotionally. Mm, yeah. And what I was recognizing is this disconnect between, yes, I can change people here intellectually, but how do, what I really want students to do is once they leave the classroom, they will say, gosh, uh, there's something I need to do. Uh, there's some action I need to take. I, even if I don't know what that is, I need to do something to make the world a better place. Because at that moment, we cannot will our way to make the world a better place. We can't think our way through it. We Something has to be done. Yeah. And the traditional academic discourse, this theories and data and so-called facts, and what I recognized at the time is that we're not enough to compel people into action, right? Yeah. What I want people to do is I want them to go out, not only knowing that they think differently, but they will say, is there something I can do differently to make the world a better place? It's and adding that like emotional, like making it more personal and like putting a face to the statistics. Um, absolutely. absolutely. So what I want people to do is how do I connect with people emotionally? How do I compel them emotionally to action? And, and toward the end of uh, my tenure there, I was frustrated with the academic discourse. I didn't really feel that I was um, making impact. Um, I feel that I was uh, reaching a very limited audience. For example, I sure I published many articles, I published books, but who who really reads our stuff? Mm -hmm. very, we are talking in a very elitist language, right? Yeah. It's a very elitist and, and uh, um, membership club, right? That yeah. Very few people read our stuff. So I didn't, I feel dissatisfied with what I was doing. And so I part of it is the reason I left. One reason I left, I, I think I really want to have an uh, wider audience. I want to do something creative. Um, I want to use a different mode of communication, a different kind of medium to convey my messages beyond the academic discourse. And so, so I started telling stories in uh, 20, January 2016. Um, and what I recognize is people have told me that, gosh, you're doing something so different you were a teacher before an educator and now you're a performer and this is what i would say i'm not doing anything different at all for example as an educator i write and teach to educate now i perform to educate right yeah as a sociologist i used to do sociological analysis um, now I integrate sociological analysis into my personal stories. I used to work with data, quantitative or qualitative data. Now I use personal experiences, telling personal stories to highlight uh, the larger social conditions that shape our experiences. And 
and I have a wider audience. So I'm not doing anything different. And what I have found is these past few years of doing art that I have been able to reach a, a wider audience and telling my own stories um, and, and on my own terms, from my own perspectives, which is something very important and that I encourage people to do. Um, it has been tremendous uh, just these past few years. I, when I started uh, undergrad, I went in uh, wanting to study film and kind of with this desire to work in the film industry for all of the same reasons that you're talking about, um, what made you go into storytelling. For me, I saw that, you know, the arts and, and movies, uh, like movies and television shows in specific, um, were this incredible medium where you could tell stories and affect, you know, a large amount of people and, and just have the possibility to, you know, access the minds and the hearts of these people with a story that is unlike their own. And that was something that was so, so powerful to me because kind of of the ways that I was affected by movies. And, you know, that's something that I still, to this day, like, you know, when you talk about representation, when you talk about storytelling, there is obviously like the important aspect of academic discourse and studying of sociological issues and political issues and all of that. Um, but like you're saying, like, it, it doesn't really have as much of a impact or a kind of like a push towards change if you don't have like the art side of it, which allows it to become more accessible. Because like, I'm a huge nerd and I'm totally down to read some like academic papers. <laughs> but like, at the end of the day, like, kind of exactly what you're saying, like academic discourse is pretty hard to like digest. It's pretty dense. And mm -hmm. like, most people would rather look at Instagram and hear somebody just talk about their experiences, talk about like why Black Lives Matter is important and not just based off of statistics. Talk about, you know, why it's important to be supporting the trans community and not just, you know, looking at the statistics of violence against the trans community. Um, and I think that's like, that's so, it, it's so incredible to kind of like hear you, you know, moving towards that and kind of like taking everything from your sociological and academic background and just pairing it with this really, really cool medium to like, to inspire so many people and to just add this kind of like strength to the stories that you're telling is, is amazing. Um, you, you spoke a little bit about your experiences in academia and as somebody who is about to go back into academia in this fall, um, I'm really curious about, you know, what was that like? Because I, I mean, as many of us know, academia is a very white industry, mm -hmm. a white space. And there's so many people of color that do, you know, want to go into that space to just learn more and strengthen just our understanding and, and our work. Um, but what was that like? Like, what, what were some of your experiences being in that space? Um, interesting. I'll tell you, when I applied to uh, 19, I think it's in 1994, I was about to uh, get my degree, master's degree from University of Oregon. And so I applied to PhD program. 
And I specifically remember I wrote it on my uh, a statement, right? We all have to write statements, <laughs> right? The application statement. And I wrote, uh, I want to be a feminist researcher and an activist scholar, right? And one of my professors, also a feminist uh, researcher and professor, academic, said to me, you are not going to be admitted. Right? <laughs> Nobody will want you if you make it clear um, that you are doing feminist research, that you want to be an activist scholar. Uh, at least the top 10 schools should not want you. And, and of course, it's different now. We're talking about in the 1990s. The mm -hmm. politics was very different at the time. And, and of course, the first year I didn't get in. The second year, I didn't uh, dilute my statement. I was still saying the same thing, that I want to be a feminist scholar. I want to be an activist, uh, feminist researcher, activist scholar. And I was very fortunate to get into University of Texas at Austin. Um, however, I did recognize right from the start, because I label myself so clearly as a feminist researcher, as an activist scholar, um, and also because I, my work uh, was concerned with areas outside of the United States. It was not seen as legitimate in sociology. It was not seen as mainstream in sociology. At the time, we're talking about the 1990s. Yeah. And, and I, I recognize that. Um, uh, it was, even though I know I'm doing better analysis, even though I know um, I, I have a better critical faculty, uh, I have better theorizing ability, uh, but because of the nature of my scholarship, uh, the attachment of this feminist, this wording, uh, the activism, um, and it tends to be dismissed and minimized in academia. Now, uh, this is the interesting thing. I um, finally got an interview, uh, got a position with DePaul University. I started uh, at DePaul as, at a time, uh, the only woman of color faculty member there. Uh, oh, wow. Probably the, the, the first immigrant woman of color. And so my first six years, what did I do? Survive in academia, getting through tenure, right? Um, and the interesting thing is, by the time I get tenure, I had uh, one book. I had uh, more academic publications than my uh, previous two white colleagues, right? Yeah. Uh, my qualifications, objectively, let's say objectively, in terms of the number of publications, and I also won teaching award. In every step away, far exceeded the achievement of my previous two white colleagues. But guess what? I still got a no for my tenure. Oh my God. <laughs> so, but that, so, so for me, the first six years was really about surviving in the academia. 
and and I I knew my record has to be had to be impeccable. I knew that you know I I got to have twice as many publications or I couldn't afford any mistakes. Um, so by the time I got tenured, um, I mean it was it, it was a survival for me for six years. I didn't really do much. I couldn't, right? Yeah. That was my first time teaching uh, an American institution, and uh, and so by the time I got tenured, I already had doubt whether I wanted to stay in academia because I couldn't. I, I couldn't recognize myself. Yeah. What was I was busy with uh, producing work that I I knew nobody would be reading, right? I was climbing academic ladder, but you know by the time I got tenure, I was asking myself, is this really worth it? Do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Only talking to the select few where the rest of the world really didn't know what I was saying. And in some way it didn't matter, right? I had the security of, uh, of tenure. Uh, but did I, did I want to produce the same scholarship over and over again? And here's the thing, I was bored. As much as yeah. I, I, I feel passionate about the topics that I was doing, I was also bored with the same topic, right? And I tried to find other topics that I would feel passionate about. I couldn't. And I think it's not that I couldn't, it's that I was already frustrated with academia. I already recognized that I just wasn't sure this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life climbing academic ladder, talking to the select few, talking a certain way. Um, I already knew that. But here's the thing, you don't just get tenure and then you quit, yeah. right? Um, and, I, I, and so I stayed and I went back to school after I got tenure. I applied to the social work program at DePaul and I became a student again in social work. And so people ask me, this is a, looking back, it's really interesting. Um, people ask me, well, uh, are you going to be a social worker? And I explained to people, uh, no, I would still be teaching at DePaul full time, but I would do social work on the side so I can have impact on people outside of academia. I recognize looking back for 10 years, I was really struggling with how do I, what to do with this job, right? Yeah. It, it was a really good job. I had benefits. I had a comfortable middle, uh, middle class lifestyle. I had respect. I had a reputable status. Um, but fundamentally, it's just not what I wanted anymore. I made it, right? Yeah. I made it in a foreign land as an immigrant. And so I couldn't quite figure out, is there a way to do other things? without quitting this job. So is there a way that I can have more impact outside uh, without quitting this job? So for 10 years, I was really struggling with, okay, I'm going to do social work, have impact, talk to real people, have impact on people's lives while teaching. 
And I think by the end, uh, toward the end of, uh, you know, 2014, 2015, I recognized, I, I don't think um, academia was, was it for me anymore. And, and I had to, to make a decision. And, you know, it's, um, it, it just, this whole idea of being a tenure full-time faculty member and trying to do something else, just would not work for me anymore. I, I'm curious, you mentioned how you're an immigrant and talking about your experiences um, kind of for your first six years in academia, just trying to survive. Um, and I was wondering if that was, it, what your experiences coming to the United States were. Like, did you, was that kind of echoing parts of your immigration to the US and, and trying to survive in this new land that, isn't always the doesn't look always favorably upon Asian immigrants or even Asian Americans. Um, was that kind of, uh, you know, analogous to your experiences kind of coming over here? Um, it was. It was, I, I have to say, as much as I can say, as an immigrant, I'm discriminated or oppressed. I still am very privileged one, right? Yeah. Uh, to other people. Um, I came here for, I got my um, bachelor's degree in Spanish uh, language, oh, cool. yeah, in literature in Taiwan. And I came here for master's degree at the University of Oregon. And then I went to University of Texas at Austin for PhD in sociology. So my path here in the United States has always been very much rooted in academia. Mm -hmm. right? And along the way, you know, I was very lucky and, and I'm also in, uh, social sciences. So my experience is very different from, uh, let's say, if you're natural sciences or physics or computer engineering. Right? Mm -hmm. In social sciences, it's a little bit different. And along the way, I was very lucky to have great teachers who saw potential in me and really supported me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's just so interesting, though, because your path, like, like you were saying, it, it, in academia, it has a, a certain amount of privilege compared to other folks. Oh, yes. um, and yet, oh, I, and, and yet, um, even with that privilege, you spoke about experiences as a woman of color of being in academia, of having to, you know, work twice as hard as your male colleagues. And I find that as something, you know, in the Asian American, you know, Asian experience in the West as being really interesting because so many times those experiences of discrimination are erased under this model minority assumption where somebody would, where somebody is like, oh, Ada, like you're in academia, you made it. Um, so like everything is fine for you. Um, and this is not to erase, you know, other forms of discrimination for those in the Asian community that are less privileged. Um, but to say that, like, it, it's still there. Um, and, and we don't it, really talk about it. <laughs> I think it's very, I find as an Asian American, uh, and, and that term itself, I also find very tricky because I was in the United States for 25 years before I became a citizen. So for 25 years, I was an Asian. So, yeah. and, and I put 
even claim the, the title of Asian American, right? Because of lack of citizenship. Yeah. And then, then what makes me suddenly an Asian American? A piece Just of paper? A piece of, <laughs> piece of paper. Yeah. And so for me, the so-called Asian American experiences is always about diaspora. It's always a continuing, right? It's not a dichotomy, right? Mm -hmm. The spectrum. And we're talking about people who move from one end to the other, but also moving back in between, right? Mm -hmm. and, and more fluidity than the way we think about just Asian Americans. So I tend to like to say Asian diaspora and Asian American because I'm always kind of in between. And I find it, yes, very difficult to talk about my own experiences. And, and I have had people tell me, wait, why are you complaining? You made it, you were, ten you were a tenure professor you had a really comfortable lifestyle what's there to complain about and 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 it's, so we get into this oppression pyramid right yeah who the is, oppression olympics like it's a contest right that who is more oppressed than the other and and of course i mean i i don't you know we cannot experiences are not comparable but there's also a danger when we try to rank who is more oppressed, uh, then we ignore that 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 people people have experienced discrimination and oppression in their own realm, right? Based on their own experiences. Um, and how do we center our in my my in my work? It's really about how do I center my experiences without erasing others. So I always try to keep a comparative perspective. Even when I talk about, you know, my own experience with discrimination and oppression, I still talk about my privilege at the same time, right? In comparison, uh, in comparison to uh, people from other groups. Because, and that's how we see how racial hierarchy and racial structure in the United States works. It's about making different groups experience differently. Right, that, that divide and conquer. Um, so the key is really not just about understanding one's own experiences, but understanding what are our shared experiences and what are the different experiences. So we know how exactly the racial hierarchy and racial structure works in the United States. Um, I, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I, I really liked how you mentioned when you talk about your experiences with discrimination, you always make sure to acknowledge your privilege. Um, and I find that to be something that's so powerful for like whenever I hear somebody talking about anything, you know, the, the simple acknowledgement of their privilege, whether it be, you know, a racial privilege or socioeconomic privilege, um, you know, just like this acknowledgement that yeah, you know, there's something about my experience um, that privileges me or gives me power in a way that some other folks don't have. Right. Feels like an instant, you know, like for me personally, I'm, I'm instantly able to be like, oh, I get it. Like, I, I, I see that you're not trying to, you're not talking about your discrimination or your experiences in a way to um, kind of gain pity uh inside you're, you're kind of talking about it in a way to just be like these are my experiences they have been shitty um mm -hmm. and here i am trying to talk about it because i want to lessen that experience for others like myself 
and mm -hmm. others who may have worse experience, you know, who may not have my privilege and, and may encounter differing or worse um, experiences than I do. And, mm -hmm. but I also feel like at the same time in like discourse, kind of like in this woke discourse that we're in um, right now, that there is constantly this fear of acknowledging privilege, uh, you know, for the fear of being punished for your privilege. That like, mm -hmm. like for myself, um, I'm very lucky that I, you know, my, my parents were Indian immigrants. They did, um, my dad built like an incredible life for my family. And so I'm very socioeconomically privileged. Um, mm -hmm. And I oftentimes feel this pressure to, I don't know if pressure is the right, right word, but I, I sometimes feel ashamed of that, like that I am not able to talk about my experiences of discrimination because I, you know, I, I have this privilege and because I have been able to go into, you know, academia and get, you know, like have all of these things. Um, and, and I just, I don't know how you uh, kind of, if you have any thoughts on that. It's interesting. Um, one thing about privilege is, I, I think people forget, privilege is not static, right? Mm -hmm. Shift, right? E -e uh, particularly socioeconomic privileges, they can change throughout the lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you were born rich, that you won't become, uh, you won't be in poverty at some point, right? So, so I think sometimes people forget that privilege is shift, right? Yeah. Now, the second thing, this is uh, interesting. So I, I used to teach privileges in, in, in classroom. Now, oh, right? right, a lot of my students will feel guilty. They, they feel especially uh, white guilt, mm -hmm. particularly white students, right? Because I would talk about gender oppression, discrimination, racial discrimination, discrimination class discrimination. And of course, a lot of the students, uh, particularly if they're white men, right, on the top, um, they feel guilty. Right? Now, this is what I say. I say, well, it defeats the whole purpose if I'm teaching these materials for you to feel guilty. That's not the purpose of the, uh, of, the, of the teaching. What I want you to do is that if you have privileges, use them for good. Yeah. If you have power, great. Use them for good to change the world for, for the better for everybody. Thank goodness you have power. Do something with it. Don't. It's a privilege to feel despondent, to feel guilty, to to feel despair. Right? Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. You have the privilege, right? At this point in time, uh, that it's do something with it. Do some good. Use it for good. That's how you. And don't don't get caught in this despair or guilty feeling because it doesn't it's unproductive. The productive thing is to do is to think about what can you do with these privileges. And I'll give you an, another example. I you know I talk about how um, along the way. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, no, okay. I, I talk about how along the way. Uh, I have, I was very lucky to have professors who were supported. So this professor, good, 
Yes, good. Sorry, it was just dying, oh. and I was like, didn't want to interrupt you at all. Technology okay. problems. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's okay. So this professor of mine, Christine Williams, who's a feminist scholar at a, uh, at the University of Texas, Austin, very well respected. Um, she fought for me every step of the way. Now, she was just elected as the president of American Sociological Association. Oh, wow. I went back. I went back. I mean, this is, this is, this is not easy, right? We're talking about sociology as a discipline has very much all very male-dominated, uh, very Western-centered. And so for her to get to this position is not easy. Now, I went to see her. I went, I brought my solo show back to, to UT Austin uh, graduate program, and I did a performance there. And so we were having dinner. And this is what she said. She said, my mission is to use my privileges to open space, to create space for women of color faculty members. Oh, wow. That's my mission in life is to use my power to create space for women of color faculty. I feel like the, the emphasis on creating space is something that's so powerful because oftentimes people are like, uh, it's kind of like that saviorism mentality um, yes. versus creating space to allow folks to just, to thrive, to, to support mm -hmm. and to not save. I think that- It's a line that is not easy to maintain, right? Absolutely, yeah. A, I think, uh, it, and then she, this is a, another thing that I, uh, because I reminded, during dinner, I reminded her. When I was, uh, this is interesting. So when I was doing my, working on my dissertation, I gave her my, each chapter. So she would correct my sentences. And we're talking about every sentence. She would, <laughs> she would rewrite it, right? Yeah. So after each chapter, I would get back the sentences that were written to be more um, uh, written by Native Americans. Mm. Does that make sense to you? Yes, right. yes. And, and so she also made sure that it's readable uh, because I was all high in my head with constructs and abstracts, right? A lot of abstraction. Yes, I and feel that. <laughs> she rewrote most sentences to make it more like as if it was written by Native Americans, right? Native born Americans, then to, um, and to make sure it's, it's accessible, right? And so, and here's the thing, I didn't understand what I meant until I became a professor. I would not do that for a student. Because that's just too much time. Yeah. Talking about dissertation over 100 pages. And then each chapter she will rewrite. A lot of students will complain. Why do you rewrite my dissertation? But here's the thing. Either I pay another editor to rewrite the sentences for me. Right? That would cost me a lot of money. Mm -hmm. She did it herself. And I learned how to write better. I learned how to become a better writer. I thought I was good. And then I learned how to write 
better with her correcting every sentence. And this is what she said. She said, Ada, I know you're going to compete in the higher education. You're going to, you, you, you are going to get a position. You're going to teach. And you're going to publish in academic journals. I know what you're going to face if you don't write um, like native speakers, right? Yeah. Because as foreigners, we write differently. Absolutely. And you can, you can still tell by the way I write and by the way I speak that I'm a foreigner. And as you say, that's the only way. If you are going to compete in academia, sure, we can challenge this this supremacy in terms of the, the problematic uh, policy in terms of the supremacy of English. On the other hand, she was also very pragmatic that you are going to work in the United States. You are going to have to publish in English in American journals for American, mostly American audiences. Unfortunately, it's imperative that you master the right? Yeah. And, and so she said, I understand the obstacles that you have to face. And she did that for me. That's incredible. Because that's something that's like, I mean, I think that foreigners of any ethnicity, you know, like non-native English speaking foreigners um, face so often. And I mean, I think it's um, an experience amongst Asian folks where our languages and the way that we talk have been, you know, a source of comedy in the Western world for so long that like, compared to other um, non-English foreigners, right? Like, we are constantly fighting, you know, trying to assimilate or talk in a way where it's like, no, our, don't make fun of me. Like, trying to escape that, like, this is who I, you know, like, the butt of the joke. Because, right. um, and to have somebody, you know, recognize the importance of, like kind of like recognize yes it sucks that we have to play into this structure but also like by playing in this structure it gives you so much power to impart the ideas and your thoughts and your voice in this field that mm -hmm. you know could otherwise be just written off based off of the you know the way that you write and that's and, like and, and she recognized she says you know she's very pra pragmatic um, and, and I think in some way I use the word uh, strategic, right? Yeah. That is what, what exactly is the battle? You know, how can, we, how can we hold both ends? That is, yes, while we need to challenge this, this issue about language, the use of language, but at the same time, you also have the reality of making it and surviving it in the academia when uh, mastering the language, uh, mastering the, the academic discourse is the way to be recognized and legitimated, right? Yeah. Now, how can we also be practical uh, and strategic about it? And, and how do we hold the tension between these two? And, and so for me, it's, it's important, right? Is uh, that, that you, 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 I learned how to be 
become a better writer because this teacher recognized it and and really pushed me. Uh, and and when she say, you know, she's using her power and her privileges to create space for people, it makes sense to me. What I mean, this is a white woman, right? Yeah. And then she see that because she's in a position of power, that she is able to pull and support other uh, feminist scholars and other women of color. And so that's very important for me to remember. Um, um, in terms of, um, that's what I tell students, and for me as well, right, as somebody with certain privileges, that is, is the issue is not whether we have privileges or not. The issue is what to do with them. What do we do with them? Um, if we have privileges, whether it's racial, class, or gender, what can we do for other people? Uh, what are we willing to give up, right? Uh, how do we give space? Not just create space. How do we, how do we give space? How do we share space? And these are challenging questions because once we create space, people may not want to share space, right? Uh, how, how, we, how do we um, give space? How do we, uh, and, and it's, these are the questions that I just continue to think. But what I consistently tell students is don't get caught in despair, guilt, because those are unproductive feelings and sentiments. The thing is, ask yourself, what can I do with my privileges? How can I use them for good? And how can I talk about issues facing Asian Americans, centering these experiences without minimizing and erasing other people's experiences? And that's what I do. I'll give you another example, how I sort of centering my experiences while uh, highlighting the differences between us. I uh, went to my citizenship ceremony on May 27, 2015. I invited two people, uh, my ex-partner and the chair of my department, right? So the citizenship ceremony, uh, your parents uh, have experienced that, I'm yes. assuming. Um, Right, so you 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 watch documentaries, right? Yes, yeah. So you're listening to you sing national anthem, uh, pledging allegiance to the flag, and you receive the, the the certificate of naturalization. Now, this is the interesting part. In the first documentary, the narrator talk about how we, right? This is the American immigration history. You will watch documentary about American exceptionalism and immigration history. <laughs> so they would talk about how we were fortunate to escape war, poverty, and religious and political repressions to come to this country to pursue our American dream, right? Mm -hmm. This is standard rhetoric. <laughs> yes. Right? Right? You escape the, 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 the poverty, the, the war, the trauma. You come to this to pursue American dream. Now you, you come to uh, pursue this American dream. I felt terrible that I invited my chair. My chair was a 70-year-old African-American man. His ancestors didn't come to this country voluntarily. Yeah. His parents 
in his parents' time, people were not allowed to swim in the same swimming pool. He didn't, his ancestors didn't escape war, poverty, and political religious repressions. So that was very important for me to tell. That is, as I feel ambivalent about uh, giving up my citizenship in Taiwan, claiming the American citizen, hearing this American rhetoric about this rhetoric about American exceptionalism, 2015, right? Yeah. Baltimore was under scrutiny because of the death of Freddie Gray. Where is war? War is not outside of the United States. War is right here in the United States, in our own backyard and there I was invited a black man to my ceremony and all this rhetoric about American exceptionalism of how great a country it, it was and then for him to sit there and to listen to that but yet knowing that his ancestors didn't escape anything right yeah so for me, that was very important, even though my whole story was about my citizenship ceremony. I had to talk about him. That is, what did it mean for him to, list, to sit there and to observe me, go through to receive my certificate, wanting to be happy for me, yet, listening to the the hypocrisy of the american exceptionalism and all the so-called standard narrative that we oftentimes listen to this american immigrant dream escaping something just didn't work in his case yeah. and so for me is as i was telling that story even though i was telling about my citizenship story I was also highlighting, right, how our stories between me and him, our stories are very connected, yet very different under the same racial structure. Yeah. So sure, I could tell stories just about myself, but I want to highlight that part. That is, that question, the American the exceptionalism, the rhetoric of American exceptionalism, let's question that. Let's think about when we tell immigrants that you escape this and that, who is sitting on those chairs? What are they escaping, right? Who is listening? And, and well, oftentimes we want to say, this is a nation of immigrants. We want to be very careful about that. And only I think some, only yeah, some of us, yeah, no. And I think, I mean, you point to something that is so important within that rhetoric of immigration is this idea of like the good immigrants versus the bad immigrants. Um, mm -hmm. which I feel is so rooted in this, the, the rhetoric surrounding American mm -hmm. exceptionalism, right? Like somebody could look upon you and be like, Ada, you were the good immigrant. And, then, and then look at just any Latinx presenting person, right? Yeah. In, on the streets and be like, they are the bad immigrant. Not knowing anything other than the fact that this person is Latinx. Um, and then all of a sudden it's like, you're pitting um, these racial groups against each other and erasing the different um, experiences of how 
our parents, how our descendants came into this country. And you, I mean, like, from what you're saying, like, you're, you're really disrupting that, disrupting that rhetoric and being like, hey, yeah, like, I, I'm an American citizen. And my, the chair of my department also is an American citizen. Um, Yet, you know, like, our paths here are very different. And to erase that under just one, you know, like, breath, you know, erase that with, like, one piece of paper, essentially, is to do harm um, to the experiences and the existence, uh, you know, like, how our different groups kind of, like, exist in the United States. And I feel like it's so often, I mean, like, you can see that uh, simply with, like, the Harvard admissions case, right, Mm -hmm. where Asian Americans the quote-unquote good immigrants are being put uh, pit against um, black students. Um, And then, you know, even more than that, it's like this whole umbrella term of like the good Asian American immigrant um, erases the experiences of Southeast Asian um, refugees and immigrants who are, you know, being deported, who have had, like, Vietnamese refugees have had, like, through the past, what, like, four administrations, there has been really awful um, deportation policies wrought against those communities. So, like, why, you know, like, to just kind of be complicit and and to not continue to question and to disrupt the the good immigrant, right, is to is to be complicit in that and to, to right. just allow these things to happen. Right. I mean, if you look at our uh, immigration policy historically, you know, it's not against immigrants. It's against certain types of immigrants. Oh, my God. The Chinese Exclusion right. Act? Right. Right. Yeah. The way is that there's always a group of uh, as a scapegoat or groups as a scapegoats, right? As mm-hmm. a, a being demonized. So, for example, I would say, sure, as much as I can talk about my discrimination uh, as, as an immigrant, I know when I walk down the street, nobody profiled me. Yes. I don't get stopped, right? This is not a, an undesirable, right? We're talking about, we are against the so-called, the defined undesirable mm-hmm. immigrant, the categories, the aliens, right? We, we use very different terms to describe the undesirable. And, and so it's not against immigrants, it's certain types of immigrants. So I, I recognize that. That is, I know that, so that's why I always emphasize my path as an immigrant has always been very privileged. Uh, even though as an immigrant, I still, so I still understand that piece of land that stand on, it's not solid, right? Mm-hmm. That is, you need, you need to stand on solid land to build dreams. You, you can't live a life without standing on solid land. And as much as I'm privileged, I also understand the precariousness of this piece of paper because the government can always say, well, we don't recognize you anymore. Think about Japanese internment case. Yeah. Right? So, so there's always that in my mind that this is not solid, right? This land, and imagine if I already feel that, imagine people who are undocumented, who have to live in fear. How do you build dreams, build your future, when you don't even know the land you're standing on is solid? 
right? That if you don't even, if that land is elusive, that can be taken away, and your dream can be gone just like that. And if I am already worried, and and my path is stable and smooth, if I already have that fear and paranoia and anxiety, imagine people who constantly live in fear. Fear. And so my thing. Is as I, so, so in my stories, it's all about, sure, I'm telling my personal stories, but what I really want to do is to highlight, right, that structural inequities, that social conditions that shape our experiences similarly, but also differently. So I can compare and contrast, but fundamentally, it goes back to that unequal social conditions, right, that structure, the structural inequities. Um, I will give you another example. When I took my solo show, not quite, Asian American by law, Asian women by desire to different cities. And one time I was in Boulder, Colorado doing show. Um, and, and that whole show is about immigration, race, and intersectionality, right? And, and I talk about how um, unsafe I feel. Now, so one audience members asked me, well, do you feel safe anywhere in the United States? And I said, no, I don't. But I also know when I walk down the street, I'm not going to get shot. Yeah. Right? Right? Because yeah. I know I'm not going to get profiled. I know my body and presence is not deemed as a threat. Right? Yeah. And there are people whose presence and whose body are consistently constructed and seen as a threat. So... And I also know, sure, there's also particular violence that can be inflicted upon me as an Asian American woman, as an Asian woman, right? Yeah. But at the same time, I also know I'm not going to get shot. And, and so yeah. it's, it's that you, you kind of, you are in that place where you know the particular experiences of violence or oppression or discrimination but then at the same time you also see in comparison that you can enjoy uh certain things right it's safety that, and unsafety right. kind of at the same time right and, and so you and so for me is it's important to speak about both right it, and it's, if i only speak of one then i i forget how other people they live their lives so the key is how do we speak about both and and what makes both possible is that particular social condition and structural inequity right so in my work it's always about how do i talk about myself as an asian american asian american woman but at the same time uh the, the underlying messages or the, the subtext is always in comparison with women from different groups or different experiences, right? So it's important for us to sort of maintain that tension, right? How do we speak about both? That's very important. I feel like that really, it kind of hits on this, this question that I wanted to ask you about you know, what does Asian American culture look like, or like Asian diaspora culture look like to you? And, you know, like, 
because I think that we're constantly trying to define that, to, to, to find our place in the United States, which has traditionally always been a, a black and white culture. Like that yeah. is kind of like how our culture has been defined. And yeah, I mean, like everything that you were saying, like I feel like what you're doing through your work um, is defining that. It's creating these relationships and this recognition that like, you know, Asians do, we have space here. And also like, it is different, you know, like it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It is in relation to both. Um, and it, it seems to, I mean, like for what does Asian American culture look like to you? Right now, let me ask you this question. Were you born here? Yes, I was. Like, so this is uh, something that I find uh, very interesting. I struggle with it, right? How do you define American culture? I, whiteness, honestly. Okay. I, I, yeah, I see it. If, if you say like American, I'm like Archie Comics, essentially. Okay. All right. So here's the thing. And sometimes uh, Asians and Asian Americans fall into that as well. Yes. So, I would tell, I would ask students, what, what's American culture? Is it McDonald's? Is it Burger King? No, they would say no. Okay. Is it Amazon? No. Is it, what's the clothing that will represent American culture? What's the clothing? What's the food? Hmm. What's the food? Right? Yeah. Nothing. But so we have such a so right. What's yeah. No. Food? No. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Apple pie. What, 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 okay. <laughs> so what's the clothing? You would say uh, so many. The regional differences. Yeah. Uh, uh, generational differences. Seventies, eighties, nineties, millennial. Right. Mm -hmm. What? Uh, no regional differences. Uh, group differences. Right now. We have a tough time defining American culture. What makes us think that it's easy to define another culture? Oh, that's it. Why, yeah. why Asians or Asian Americans feel so at ease at picking out a piece of clothing and say this is, Ameri this is Chinese culture? That this is Indian culture. Why do we feel so at ease? A picking out a dish and say this is Mexican culture or say this is French culture right yeah think about this when we are going to answer the question about Western culture whether it is British American or we use American everyone would have a tough time answering when I say is it McDonald's no Amazon no Wall Street no, what's the clothing that we represent? Nothing, it's everything. Yeah. So America, the United States is so diverse. But yet, what, what's the image when we think about Chinese culture? We have a few dishes. Yeah. We have piece of clothing, the same with Japan, the same with Korea, the same with India, but, China is so big, India is so big, thousands yeah. of But why do we feel so comfortable simply picking out 
that a piece of clothing or a few dishes to represent India or China or Japan. And that's what I find even problematic of some Asian, Asian American artists that we use, right? Uh, that that the, the way that, that we, I, the culture, I always, I always describe those as cultural events. Mm -hmm. You have those experiences where people want you to talk about your culture, invite you. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, the token kind yeah, of. Yeah. What do people do? They wear certain clothing that yeah. brings objects, right? Yeah. But are we reinforcing certain myths about that particular culture? Absolutely. So that, yeah. Exactly. Like, all right. So if American go to let's say China and somebody invite American and say, bring something to introduce your culture, what should that be? It shouldn't it shouldn't be defined like there shouldn't be a definite like so here's a problem that i find this double-edged sword right how what what is it is if we use certain objects piece of clothing or certain dishes we reify it right yeah. we reify culture as if that's all we present over and over again a particular images about that particular culture. And by doing that, we essentialize it, right? But yet, what's culture? It's constantly evolving. It's constantly changing. But oftentimes, we bring objects, things that keep going back to that ancient concept. And like the orientalist mentality that like exactly so here's my thing is that challenges for a lot of us asian asian american artists i do have to raise the question when we say we're doing asian asian american art are we reinforcing an orientalist image of what the west conceive the east to be that? I don't have any, that's a question I have to asking because I have seen storytellers, right? They will tell stories and I will always go back to ancient China, ancient Japan, ancient. Um, and they will wear certain clothing. I don't even wear those clothes. I didn't even wear those clothes in Taiwan contemporary and people don't wear those clothes in Taiwan yeah people wear those clothes people what if I say I, I ate a lot of hamburgers in Taiwan right so, so I, what <laughs> so yeah say, yeah what is it so I say well I ate a lot of sandwiches like I ate a lot of I had pasta right in Taiwan sure I also have chicken and all these dishes, Chinese dishes, uh, or Taiwanese dishes, but I also ate a lot of hamburgers. Now, if we consistently simply use a few items and objects to say 
to represent, and mm -hmm. we also replicating Orientalism ourselves. I that's like it's such an interesting question because I feel like so many of us right now are um, you know trying to decolonize ourselves, right? To to go up against. Um, you know, basically the powers that brought like hamburgers and pasta and everything to Taiwan or Asia. And yet in doing so, it almost seems like we're, we're reinforcing the Orientalist idea, you know, like in trying to reclaim the culture, our own culture and, and kind of go rally against colonialism. We are sometimes exoticizing ourselves as opposed to that's what you know, I have seen. Yeah. As opposed to just being like, look, we were colonized. There's this huge influence there. It's not you know, to completely shed that away from ourselves and to go back to like ancientness, right? And like ancient whatever, um, is to ignore the, you know, the kind of continuum of our culture or like the the the, the growth and the changing and, and that fluidity of culture and to almost stick us in one unmovable place in that like you know for me to just be like oh yeah like let's go pre-colonial India and it's like okay with all the rajas and everything right like but that would force me to get stuck in that one specific time as opposed to being like okay, yeah, like the Brits came and they wrecked havoc over India in really shitty ways. Um, that is absolutely true and absolutely awful. And at the same time, impacted India in a way, um, you know, that has created a different culture and, and has informed the culture in, a, in some new and exciting ways. And these two things can be true at the same time. Like, it was awful, and it, there are also some good things. For me, and I have seen that, uh, particularly in second generation of uh, Asian Americans, right? Mm -hmm. they, they want to go back to the homeland to find the root, right? Yeah. And, but what I sometimes see is this persistent returning return to the, the essence of, a, a, of an ancient construct that yeah. may not any truth to the contemporary era, right? And this doesn't mean that that doesn't, that didn't exist. It did. But the question for me really is, how, how do we speak about the unspeakable? How do we capture the elusive? How do we capture, if we think of the United States, the culture, right? The, the way I usually teach about culture, if people have a tough time understanding Orientalism, I simply just say, ask them about America, the United States, right? How, how do you, you know, how do you define it? What would you try to capture, right? What, what's, what represents, right? And then you find, you use the same struggle, the same criteria and try to define the, the other, right? Whether we're talking about Africa or Asia, right? And if you, if, you, if it's so easy for you to define the other, then you're falling into the trap of Orientalism. That is, yeah. right? What is it that, so how do we capture 
if we say culture is constantly evolving, what's the consistent, right? And how do we capture that consistent without reifying it, without essentializing? And is it even possible, right? How do we speak a culture in a way that complicating it, right? Without, without reifying, without objectifying, without essentializing, without um, minimizing into to simply a few items and piece of clothing or, or objects. And, you know, I struggle with that. So that I don't have any answer, but um, because I was asked to present my culture before too, right? Yeah. You know, I <laughs> so I, I, and at some point I recognize whether by speaking about culture, that we have to acknowledge that culture kind of a split, right? Escapes our, our, our speaking at the same time. Yeah. How do we really capture that fluidity, right? How, how, do we, how do we really capture that evolution of culture, the complexity of it, right? Yeah. Uh, another example um, I will give students because I taught, um, Gender and violence, right? These are the classes, masculinity, these are the classes that, that I, I used to teach. So I, students, would, I would ask the students, what do you think about, you know, what do you, what images come to mind? What things come to your mind when you think about India? Right? Oh, what, no. what, they feel really yeah, racist now. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, right? Yeah. <laughs> Right, so you know, right? Yeah. So, uh, what what images come to your mind when you think about, let's say, Saudi Arabia? Oh, when you think about, let's say, China, right? And within the context of gender and violence, of course, you know where students are going to, right? Yeah. Okay, so you know you know where I'm going with this, right? Now, and and I would say. Okay, how is, uh, how is it different from, let's say, domestic violence here in the United States? How is it different from, let's say, sexual violence in the United States, right? How, how do we talk about it? That is, the problem becomes when we think about say domestic violence or sexual assault or sexual violence, violence, gender violence in other countries, we automatically attach to cultural influence. Mm -hmm. That we say it's a culture. But when it comes to the United States, we will attach it to a, a combination of complicated factors. We excuse it as being something else. Yeah, so we will say it's cultural, or we don't want to acknowledge culture. We will say it's socioeconomic. We will say it's political, but then we don't necessarily talk about culture. But when we talk about problems, and oftentimes one or two single problems in other culture, we attribute it to cultural factors. Like that's just how it is over there. Right. Cultural practices. As opposed to what isn't the same in the United States, that we also have a culture of violence against women. Yes. We have a 
have a culture of gender violence. We have a culture of toxic masculinity, right? But then how come we don't think of these as savage? I'm going to use the word savage. But that's like the perfect example of it. It's like when you look at, it's the savagery that is accompanied by the classification of the third world. Exactly, right? right. So we look at those practices in other countries. Um, this, you will see the same practices here, but we attach very different images. We explain it differently. We use cultural terms. Um, we use terms, savage, oftentimes, uncivilized, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to, as opposed to here, we use very different languages to describe violent practices. And that really shapes the way we see things. And so, so that's why, you know, when I teach, um, I, in my, I have come to the conclusion that we can't just teach one thing. Part of it is about teaching people how to examine their own lenses. So when they see things, they can see things comparatively. That is, what's the lens I bring to you when I examine this culture? Mm -hmm. And what's the problem? Do I use the same lens to look at other cultures? If not, what's the difference? And, and, so, I, uh, and so when you ask the question about culture, that's the thing I struggle with. That is, how do we present culture that still retains its complicity? right? It's yeah. complicated nature. Um, how do we do that in a way uh, that makes sense? Um, for example, my second solo show, I talk about domestic violence in my own family background, right? And what was my concern when I told stories about domestic violence? So of course, in front of a, a group of middle-class white audience, my worst fear would be reinforcing the stereotypes about Asian women yeah. and stereotypes about Asian men. So my, so when I talk about, so the, the goal, the key, the issue is not, it's not that I can't speak about it, I have to. But then the question is, how do I speak about it that can make people understand it's the same in the United States, right? Yeah. And so I, I, I wrote this solo show as Me Too movement was happening, right? And, and so the way I did it is to make sure I wrote in a way that as I was talking about my personal experiences, that I made it complicated enough that people can relate what's happening in the United States. It's not just about the culture. It's also about women's inferior position that is shaped by socioeconomic factors, about the lack of economic uh, employment opportunities, lack of education, the lack of, uh, the lack of socioeconomic and political power. So it's not just this oppressive culture that is oppressive to women and men are bad, right? So I have to tell in a complicated way that make sure people understand the same gender hierarchy and inequality exists in the United States. And, and so for me, it's always a challenge. That is, 
how do I speak about my own experiences, but also making sure that my messages are conveyed and construed and received appropriately by the audience within this racialized context. And that's, that's really the challenge here. That you hit on uh, when you were talking about how do I make folks understand that it is not like a cultural thing? Like, you know, that it, it, this, these experiences can't be just, oh, that's how it is in China. That's how it is in Saudi Arabia, right? And, and it is, they are experiences that occur in the United States as well for many of the same reasons. Um, makes me, I mean, like, this is the Gaijin podcast, so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about kind of like queerness as well, because I think that right now we're, again, in this woke time of ours, um, we talk so much about queerness as this like newfound Western idea, um, when in reality, it's not. Like it is not something that, that just happened in the millennium. Um, right. Something that's, that's been around for, for millennia, right? Like, and it's not something that is different in Taiwan versus India right. versus England. Um, right. And I was curious about your, you, kind of like your experiences with queerness and your, uh, you know, like versus in like not Asia and also in the United States, because I think, right. yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting. I, I have been, and I, I, Sometimes I don't say it uh, because I don't know if people can understand this whole coming out concept. Yes, I have a tough time with it. Um, or the coming out story, right? Or uh, because the the way I related to is is very different. And and I'll I'll say how did it start? Um, it starts with gender. Uh, so, so when I was, uh, it's, it's interesting, when I was 19, I mean, I was uh, grew up as, as a tomboy, right? I was, uh, I, and I really literally just walked and talked and behaved like a little boy. I, I was, uh, um, and when I was 19 years old, and I was so masculine, um, because I just didn't have any trace of femininity, right? And partially is, um, and, and so when I was 19 or 18 years old, um, I was, uh, I got a phone call from a um, classmate of mine to wish me happy birthday. And my brother was listening on the other line, right? An older brother. And I was all very, say, oh, okay, happy birthday, thank you. So a man called me, a, a, a boy called me, right, my classmate. And I was so unappreciative, or I sounded unappreciative, I would just say, sure, thank you so much, I, you know. <laughs> After, right, my brother said to me, are you, you, you are gay, are, are you? You must be, you're gay, right? And where did I come from? It, can't, it, it was not about necessary sexuality. It was, a, it was inference from I was so masculine that I wasn't even grateful 
that a young man called my house, that I wasn't even interested, or that I didn't even show excitement. That's how he inferred that I was gay. And I remember saying to him, and, and I had to say at a time, I never feel, you know, I, I never feel I was attracted to, uh, that I had to be attracted to one or the other. My concern at the time really was, how can I make it as a woman? <laughs> yeah. I couldn't make it, uh, especially within the Asian culture. Um, I wasn't as delicate like like my classmates. I just wasn't born like a delicate girl. You you know what I'm talking about. I'm same. Yes, I yes. <laughs> my struggle was less about sexuality. Was more about gosh, can I even make it in this country as a woman? Because I I even wanted to become a boy. I and and I wanted to become a man. And and that desire was about power because I saw how my father and my brother had all the power simply because of their gender. So I wanted so much to become a boy and a man. And, and I wasn't even concerned about sexuality. And my concern was, do I even have the ability to fall in love? I wasn't concerned about whether it has to be a particular gender. Um, I just, I want to fall in love. It really doesn't matter whom, right? Um, and I never feel that I rejected that it has to be one gender over the other. My concern at the time is survival as a particular gender, right? I didn't feel that I could make it. Up until my 30s, I would still look at my mirror and I thought, gosh, could I make it as a woman? And that was after I came here in this country. After I came here um, to the United States, I was in Eugene, Oregon, and, and I was attracted to women, but I never could fall in love. Um, I, you know, I was attracted to, so for me, it was never this struggle of, for me, it was just, it's more about a question of, am I going to find somebody that I can fall in love with? I didn't have the struggle of, um, of gosh, I, I, why am I falling, why am I loving uh, another woman? It's never about that. It's, do I have the ability to fall in love? And it really doesn't matter, right? I just need a human being. Or can I even make it as a particular gender? Because I didn't feel like a woman. I couldn't quite make sense of my gender. I didn't, I couldn't quite feel like a woman. I don't know how to make it work. Um, until <laughs> I, I went to an Asian um, lesbian conference in the Philippines, right? I, huh. Should I give you a like, I guess. Yeah. I actually, that was, I was so not defining myself, but I would go to a lesbian conference. <laughs> In the Philippines, too. <laughs> I was uh, a Human Rights Watch Asia. I was a fellowship. I got a fellowship with Human Rights Watch Asia. 
and I did uh, I proposed to do this research on human rights violations against uh, uh, migrant women domestic workers. So I was in Hong Kong for seven months. Um, when I was in Hong Kong, I found out that there was this Asian Pacific lesbian lesbian conference that was going to be happening in 1995 September in the Philippines. <laughs> so I went to the Philippines to attend the conference as an observer <laughs> because I was a human rights watch <laughs> researcher, right? But without knowing in the back of my mind, of course, how else do I meet women? Yeah. Right? I was going there as a researcher, didn't really realize what I meant. Um, I just want to fall in love with somebody, but I went to a lesbian conference as opposed to a straight pride, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I went and I met my ex, ex uh, my ex first girlfriend there, fell in love. Um, and that's how I, that's how I came to understand my own sexuality is I, when I was with her, that's how I felt like a woman the first time. Um, but there's also something interesting. This is very, there's a generational difference, right? We have this butch fam dynamics and we're talking about the 1990s, right? Um, and she, she, she's a butch woman, um, and then I felt like a woman, right? And so I finally found a place with a, a butch woman, and, and that's how I kind of came to understand my sexuality. That is, I'm, I have never been against of being with anyone, but my trouble has always been how do I make sense of myself in terms of my gender role? And because I couldn't quite figure that piece out, I didn't know how to relate to people. And when I met her and, and we fell in love with each other uh, fairly quickly, and it actually made huge uh, news in the Philippines because she was as, with somebody at the time. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who is a well-known national feminist in the Philippines. So our affair uh, became a, a scandal uh, in the Philippines. Uh, that's how I fell in love. Um, and, and that's how I felt like a woman. And then, and I remember she and I would have this conversation. I would ask her, is that it? That makes me a lesbian <laughs> now? Um, uh, and, and so I oftentimes struggle with this. Is it, do I need to fall in love with somebody in order to make me one? Is just being attracted to enough? Um, at the time, it was a very different kind of politics, right? Yeah. From very different. Um, growing up, I wasn't exposed to this. Um, but I simply knew that I didn't mind. I, I wouldn't object. I, it really didn't matter to me of a particular gender. But in my generation, I'm 55, right? We didn't talk about those issues. It was all very underground. 
right? I know where the parts, right? Where the yeah. gallery spaces. And um, very binary too. Like he, like you're saying the the butch femme dynamic was very yeah. we're talking about the generational differences. And I remember this is what I was really struggling at a time. It took me a long time to come to terms with that I would constantly say, and I was a feminist, I was a feminist. Mm -hmm. And I would ask her, are we doing this correctly? Right? We're a butch fame. Isn't this kind of a replicating the heterosexual framework <laughs> of partnership? Right? Yeah. And I would question these things. And then I realized it took me a long time to realize why did I waste all this time questioning it rather than just be comfortable with whom I fall in love with, right? Why did I feel such a need to fit my relationship into a particular progressive, a particular ideology? Progressive, nonetheless, but it's still a form of ideology, yeah. right? Why do I have to, why can I just acknowledge I am attracted to butch women? That I am comfortable at least at that time, I was more comfortable within a butch fame relationship. And I wasted a lot of time questioning that because that didn't fit into the feminist ideology, right? The, the lesbian framework, right? And, and that was not progressive enough. That was not radical enough. That replicated the heterosexual framework. Right, because yeah. she wasn't a man, I was a woman. And, and then for me is, well, isn't that problematic? Um, when I wasted all this time trying to fit my experiences into categories and constructs rather than modifying the constructs and theories to fit my experiences, right? Yeah. What, what do we what do we choose? Another example. I was very into. Do you mind just a minute? Let me plug oh, yeah, in of course. The, the power. Yes, yes. I yes. was running out of. All right, very good. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Now, another thing I would say that I struggle with, I was very into BDSM, right? Yeah. I still am. Hell yeah. <laughs> right? Now, yes, yes. In my generation, that we were talking about the politics before, right? I was like a taboo as a feminist, why would you buy, buy into a BDSM dynamics, yeah. right? That's so um, feminist. I feel like there's some of that uh, kind of atmosphere or uh, attitude still exists to a certain extent yes. now. Yes, yeah. yes. And, and then I, then my question really is, oh my God, what if that's my desire? What, and so for a long time, I had to struggle with this issue. What if my fundamental desires are 
just not consistent with the radical politics. Do I give up my desires? Or do I say I need to live the truth as my desires dictate? Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, it, and these two things really taught me this which film dynamics, this BDSM uh, politics that so seemingly inconsistent with the so-called feminist politics. And I struggled for a long time how to acknowledge to people and say, what if my desire is really, I am attracted to very butch women. What if my desire is, I am the, the woman in a relationship. What if I am the bottom in the BDSM dynamics? Then, then how, do, do I simply say, my desires don't count because I need to live the politics, right? Yeah. And I have to really, I struggle with that uh, contradiction for a long time until I finally had to say, gosh, I, I just need to live my truth. I really need to acknowledge that certain desires may not work with ideas and politics. And then the question is, do we live through our desires or do we simply give our desires and, and, and stick with the politics that is all here? We cannot deny our desires, right? Yeah. I, that's like, that's something that I struggle with too. Like, because I feel, I don't know, everything that you said, like it, it resonates so much with me personally because I feel like, you know, uh, right, there's so much pressure to, be the right kind of activist, the right kind of feminist. And mm -hmm. that if, you know, like you're saying, like in BDSM, there, it's so structured around a power dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so isn't, is that not unfeminine or like you being a bad feminist for wanting mm -hmm. to partake in that? Um, mm -hmm. and, 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 and it's so, it's hard. Like I, I've always had to like struggle with that, with this idea of like, if I like these certain things, this is a very trivial aspect of it, but like, mm -hmm. I really, really love things like Ina Garten or like Martha Stewart. Like I joke mm -hmm. that I'm a white woman sometimes. Right. And a lot of times I've been, you know, recently I've been like, does that invalidate my voice as wanting to be an activist for queer folks and people of color? And, you know, because there have been so, you know, especially on Twitter there's a lot of conversations where it's mm -hmm. like you you have to be exactly this type of activist exactly this type of queer person but like and so I, you know like that's something that I still I still struggle with today but what you were saying it, it kind of feels like the truest form of like radicalism or like to be like the most radical person is to embrace your own desires and own that and and kind of like accept that the two you know these two things can coexist at the same time like your brain can be thinking one thing and your heart can be also <laughs> doing something else and to deny that of yourself to like try to fit into a certain mold is not radical and you know even if that mold is like quote unquote radical like to fit into that is to be unradical 
think the interesting thing is, you know, we are creatures of contradictions. Yeah, yeah. Like, we see people, including the radical activists, that I constantly see inconsistency between their practice and the ideology and the ideals, right? Yeah. Just like myself, I, it took me a lifetime to really come to the point where I have to examine self and I realized I am a creature of contradictions. My feminist practice and ideas are never, they, they, they contradict, right? I, I, I'm a feminist, but that I don't always follow, my practice don't always follow. And I, the interesting thing is, I see that in everybody, including the so-called radical activists. And for people not to acknowledge their contradictions, the inconsistencies that that we that we dictate that uh, that everybody has to follow a certain mode. Uh, what makes us so different then from from the right, really? Yeah, it, it's our progressiveness becomes a doctrine, a dogma. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, do we leave room to explore, to examine inconsistency and contradictions? Because I, I don't, you know, I don't really say that on Facebook or social media anymore because I see people's contradictions all the time. And, and, and yeah, and that like social media has become a, it, it is a breeding ground for dogma, regardless of whether you're on the right or you're on the left. It, yeah. It's like this essentialized simplified version of things yeah. where you're either what right I, or you're wrong what i oftentimes say is dogma and authoritarianism doesn't have ideological orientation no yeah it can go either way yeah right i'm from taiwan i'm i grew up with these understanding of the 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 really the authoritarianism right the Taiwanese government. Mm -hmm. And then I also see what happened in terms of communism, right? It can go both ways. Dogma, authoritarianism, doesn't have ideological orientation. It can go either way. And, and, and sometimes, and, and I have sort of heard that from a lot of the friends who are progressives and, and are radical in their own way that their concern is no longer about the right. Their concern is about the left. Yes. Yeah. And the, the dogmatic and the, the, the pursuit of purity. Right. Yeah. But uh, in the, the leftist politics, right. This, uh, this, uh, need to, um, to expect people to, to be a certain way that we don't uh, have much room. And, and so, um, yeah, it's, uh, so I struggle with that in terms of my own, you know, desires. And um, it, it took a really a lifetime uh, to recognize that, that I struggle with that uh, against my own desires. I think the unfortunate part is that I wanted so badly to fit into politics, right, the ideologies, uh, that I forgot 
to live my own to to just to just live my own desires right to experience yeah. them as pleasure right right instead of just thinking of them as punishments and it yeah. took me a long time to really recognize that right that we are all creatures filled with contradictions and inconsistencies and that's simply recognize that absolutely well ada this it's been so wonderful talking with you and i absolutely want to talk with you again because i feel like there are so many ways this you know like so many stones that have been unturned by everything that uh we've talked about um but you know, until next time we're gonna schedule the next time and make sure that we talk uh talk again um but i you know kind of as we close out wrap up the episode i have one more question to ask you mm -hmm. um and so that is the both the most fun and the hardest question uh which is who is your bayesian of the week so anyone in the asian diaspora um that inspires you i um for some reason when you asked me that question i thought of margaret chill <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, I know that, you know, we, we haven't heard from her for quite some time, right? Well, uh, she just um, executive produced a, a mini series on YouTube called uh, Mistress Mercy. That's all about. Uh, yeah. And, and I have to say, I mean, and I followed her, her for quite some time. Uh, she was always, uh, I mean, I loved her comedy and, and I uh, saw her struggles and and uh, her up and down. Uh, I always loved her, loved her stuff. And um, yeah, so when you asked that question, Margaret Cho was the one that really came to my mind. <laughs> I, love yeah, that. So I want to really uh, uh, bring her back and, and, and go back to look at her stuff. Uh, absolutely. Because, yeah, um, absolutely. I love that. Well, again, Ada, thank you so much. And just for all of the work that you're doing in Chicago for creating this, you know, really creating spaces for folks to, Asian folks, people of color to talk about their stories um, and in their own voices and complicate our experiences, our existence even, um, I think is so powerful and, and so needed. And I think it, you know, just the knowledge that you're creating these spaces and these spaces exist. Um, I know speaking for myself, it empowers me to be able to feel like my stories are worth being told and that it, you know, like my experiences are worthy and deserving of, you know, being told. Um, and I think that's, that is really incredible. And I also know that um, in August, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of promo all of the, you know, like self-promotion for all of this stuff coming up. But um, in August, I believe that you and Randy are putting on um, a queer Asian storytelling event. Uh, um, uh, that's a show I produced. So, yes. Uh, yeah, it's a queer Asian uh, that I'm going to uh, take you to National Cambodian Heritage Museum. It's August 17th. Um, and then August 21st, we're going to take talk stories uh, to Chinese American Museum of Chicago. Um, so I, you know, what you mentioned is really about creating space, telling our own stories on our own terms, right? Yeah. 
our own space and that's really important so um yep so that's uh that's a the two shows so i produce the queer agent stories uh storytelling show and then randy and i would co-produce the top stories yeah. amazing um so yeah. where can people find you um if they want to kind of follow you and and know all of the cool things that you're doing um so the best way one way to reach me would be uh uh, that's the best way in terms of website. Um, that would be the best way. Okay. Yeah. And I yeah. will, put, I'll put the link to that, uh, in the show notes so people can go and, and read more and see some of your, uh, work as well on there. Um, but until next time, thank you so much for doing this, Ada. I, this kind of was the absolute best way to spend a Friday afternoon, uh, just <laughs> talking with you. So, oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, until next time, bye. Okay. Bye.